Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. There's a Scottish theologian that uh, I try to listen to everything he has and uh, read as much of his stuff as I possibly can. And he introduced me to a a hymn by an African pastor, a Burundi pastor by the name of uh, Sibo, Sibo Mana. And he wrote this hymn about the amazing grace of God. And as I was reading this hymn and as I was meditating on it, I just felt like God wanted us to look at a stanza each time we get together from now till Easter. And one of the reasons it's such a big deal to me is Africa was such a place of grace for me. God met me in ways like I'd never experienced before here in the States. My first trip to Africa, I was asked to lead a a conference of 4,000 folks that uh, gathered together out in this very primitive village. One, uh, one generator, uh, the only amplification we had was like a megahorn kind of thing. And, and we just saw the grace of God move among these folks. In the first couple of days, 500 instantaneous healings took place just as we anointed people with oil and prayed for them. Um, the Lord did this amazing work, and, and as, as those days of that particular conference came to a close, 400 pastors stayed behind, and we were going to have three days of summit with uh, these 400 pastors. So we began worship and prayer, and that's one guy, we didn't know if he was a pastor or not, but it was a pastor summit. He started praying and praising, and it just felt off just felt strange. It, it, hit me, it hit me very weirdly. And uh, come to find out he wasn't a pastor. He had snuck into the, to the summit, and he was actually a very demonized person. So as soon as the first session was over, he came right up to us, to the two Americans, and in perfect English, he said to us, what did God tell you about me today? And uh, we said to him, he told us he's going to deliver you. And so in that moment, we did deliverance. We delivered him of his demons. He was able to profess Jesus Christ as his Savior and as his Lord. He never spoke English again. We delivered him of English. His demon was speaking to us. In perfect English. He had, never, he had never studied or did not know English. And then he disappeared on us. And we were like, what happened to that guy? And come to find out, two days later, we get word that for two years he had been trying to profess Jesus. And every time he tried to profess Jesus, he would choke. So he couldn't breathe. His body began to feel like he was going to die. And so when we delivered him of the demonic, he professed Jesus Christ. He took the quickest route home to his little village, and he led his whole family to Christ. And then he began to preach in his village, and he led his village, which was a 
highly Muslim village and led them to Jesus as well as he told the story of how God had delivered him and then he brought the power of God's grace back to his village. I mean, you may know this, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is not an American gospel. The church of Jesus Christ is not an American church. It's a, it's a worldwide church, and he loves little villages and families and individuals who struggle like this young man did, but then his testimony became a testimony of amazing grace. And so I wanted you to see this, this beautiful African hymn. This is verse 2. And I just, I love how he captures the movement of God's grace in this hymn. My God has chosen me, though one of naught, to sit beside my king in heaven's court. Hear what my Lord has done. Oh, the love that made him run to meet his erring son. This has God wrought. Now, if you're a biblical person, you immediately will realize he's talking about the parable of the prodigal son. And so in Luke 15, 20, which this comes directly from, in Luke 15, 20, we read that the prodigal son got up out of his pigsty, out of his pig pen, and he came to his father. But notice what it says. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced his son and kissed him. Now, the parable of the prodigal son is probably one of the most well-known stories that Jesus ever told. And what, what many people will say, well, Jesus told these terrific stories, but they're not simply terrific stories. And a lot of people will say, well, Jesus told these very simple stories so people could understand them. But that's not what Jesus said the stories were about. Jesus actually said that the stories he told were to blind the people that thought they could see. And to cause those who really were blind to be able to see. And so when you hear this story, you need to go a little deeper. A little deeper into what Jesus is actually trying to teach as the secret to life. And it's sort of, in every one of his parables, the secret is the person teaching the story. Jesus himself is the message in each of these parables. Now Luke 15 is one of the best chapters of the parables of Jesus. Now, some would say, and you could easily say, there are three parables there, all about a sheep, a coin, and about a son. But you could also say it's one parable with three intensifying messages. Look at it with me in this way. The first story tells about a shepherd who had 100 sheep. Now, 100 sheep is a pretty big number. And uh, out of the hundred, he lost one. And so the, this, Jesus tells that he goes and leaves the 99 behind and he seeks after that one lost sheep. Now, sheep are worth a lot to a shepherd, but in some ways not quite as, as precious as now a woman who only had 10 coins. You see, we went from 100, now we're down to 10. Now, these ten coins are probably her dowry. They're her nest egg. That's all she has to live on. It's her security. Now, instead of a hundred sheep, now we're talking about only having ten, getting a little more precious, a little more intense, and she loses one. 
And then she goes and she has to scour to look for it. She looks in every place until it's found. Okay, so sheep are worth something. This coin, the dowry, nest egg of a woman, her security, that's worth something. But now we move all the way down to two sons. A father who has two sons. Now, I don't really care about sheep all that much. I'll eat lamb if you make it for me, but I'm not going to go out of my way for it. Ten coins, lose a coin, you know. I've lost plenty of coins in my life. Not that, not that big, but you touch my, my children. You, 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 you make me lose my children. You understand, Jesus is starting to get even more emotional. He's getting more intense. And what he's really trying to get you to see is that these parables are a mirror to the soul. They're, they're trying to get you to see. Do you understand? Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. That, that unless you get aware of how lost you are and how much value he puts in the lost, you'll never really understand how amazing grace is. Only lost people think it's amazing. Because if you never think you're lost, then it doesn't matter that he went out of his way to find you. So where do you belong in this story? In some ways, I would I like to challenge you a little bit. Do you understand that you're not just a sheep? You're not just a coin? You're a son? You're a daughter? That Jesus is really moving in these stories all the way from, yeah, a shepherd would go out of his way for a sheep. Yes, a woman would go out of the way for her dowry. But the father goes out of his way for his children. Now, Luke 15 has a context that you should also understand. I love this context. You see, Jesus never lacked for sinners hanging out with him. I love this saying. It said he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors, you could figure them out because they were the richest people in town. So they had the Gucci and the Prada and they had the, you know, they had, you know, they had the designer stuff on. But how do you tell the sinners? I guess they look like you. And me. But somehow this group was known as the tax collectors and sinners. And they're, they're distinguishable, probably, because the other group are the Pharisees. So they look devoted. They look devout. They look orthodox. They wear their religion. So these others, I don't know what they're wearing, but they're the sinners' clothes. And then the Pharisees have the religious garb. And so they begin to snicker. And they begin to get snide. And they get real snarky and says, look at him. He hangs out with and is friends with these tax collectors and these sinners. So you understand, it's in that context he tells these three stories. In other words, he's saying only the lost will get this. Only those who understand or recognize that they're lost will value this. While these others are sitting in judgment, not only on the tax collectors and sinners, but also on Jesus. Now, I like 
to kind of preface it this way, this story of the two sons is actually, in a way, a story of three sons. Because there's the lost son, there's the son who stays home, but there's also the son who left home to tell the story. Jesus himself is the son in this story. The one who tells the story. And he, again, is the secret of the story. So we'll, we'll look at these characters together. The first son, the younger son, comes to his father. Now, you have to understand that what he's coming is not with a request, but a demand. That's the opposite of grace. As soon as you say, I deserve, it's no longer grace. As soon as you say, I have a demand, it's no longer grace. Now you're saying, this is what's fair. This is what I'm due. This is what I deserve. So what he shows Jesus in this younger son's character is the son assumes a right that actually could only be a gift because he doesn't deserve what his father has, has you know, accumulated or assimilated as, a, as wealth. And so the, the son comes to the father and says, Father, give me a third of everything you have. But when he... When he makes that demand on his inheritance, the Greek there has a a word that would have provoked the listeners, maybe more than saying, I want a third of my inheritance. The the word that is used in the gospel is the word bios. And if you remember that horrible experience in high school of biology, uh, it's the study of life, bios, life. So here's what he's really saying. Give me my life. Give me my life apart from you, away from you, without any interference from you, and no responsibility or accountability from you. In other words, he's basically saying, drop dead, old man, or you're dead to me. The only way that I can find life is if I find life my way, and it has to be separated and severed from your way. Now, are you hearing me? Basically, this son is saying, you're dead to me. Now, this, is, this would be incredibly evocative in this culture because it's a traditional family culture. And in a traditional family culture, the father can say, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world. A father can say, you're dead to me because you dishonored me or you disrespected me. But the son can't say to the father, father, you're dead to me. But he's basically saying, there is no value in sonship. Give me my life. Give me my life. You're dead to me. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Now, the audience would immediately have seen, because they're a religious audience, they would have seen this is a reference to Adam who sought life apart from God. Many of us have not realized that that what Adam had, what Eve and Adam had, is they had satisfaction, they had fulfillment, because they lived from their spirit. Their life was found in their spirit with fellowship with God, fellowship with one another. But that serpent who came in and, and gave them a satanic influence was Satan himself, and he said to them, Is God not withholding from you real life? 
In other words, he says, he has kept from you the only thing that matters. You will never know life unless you rebel against the life of the Father. See, what, what, what happened was they were able to be seduced into believing life can be found in the appetites of the body instead of in the satisfaction of the spirit. And so a divorce took place and a spiritual death took place in that anyone who is born in a natural way is born with this flesh craving. It can be stimulated but never satisfied. It can be seduced but it can never be loved. It's so selfish and so self-centered. And so he is... A picture of Adam whose life apart from the Spirit, life apart from God, saying to his father, I will only have life if you are dead. And then he does, in this story, Jesus is a master storyteller, he says he goes to the far country. Uh, That's such a powerful image. In other words, he can't even be in the presence of his father. He has to be where no one knows him. If you've ever grown up in a small town, you'll understand what he's talking about here. It's because in a small town, everybody not only knows your name, but your business. My first church was a town of 100 people. And my son was about three years old. And he went running out in the street. And this sweet little lady came out and said, Joseph, you've got to get out of the street. And he goes, don't beat me. And then he throws his mother and father, and my mother and father beat me day and night, he said. <laughs> I did after that. Uh, I mean, it, you know, the idea is you've got to get away from anybody that knows you, anybody that can repro- reprove you or rebuke you in some way. You've got to go where you can have a spiritual journey where no one else is going to stop you and so he goes to this far country and then i love in the english standard version it says he squandered he squandered it on wild living i don't know what first century wild living was i'm sure it was wild but i don't know what it was and so he squanders it on wild living and so he gets to the place where he spent everything he has he's exhausted he's starving He's a stranger. You see, the, the one problem of being in somewhere where no one knows you, no one cares for you. He's a stranger. He's, in, he's disconnected. So all he can find is to feed pigs. And he starts to think, I'd be willing to eat this feed of the pigs because I'm so hungry. Now, you, you know, right? To tell a Jewish audience that he ends up in the pig pen is as low as you could possibly get. It is a destructive place. And so what happens in the pig pen is so interesting. The scripture says he comes to his senses. What a, what a word, right? He comes to his senses. Well, what does that mean? Well, he begins to view his present experience in the light of where he came from. He begins to be awakened to the fact that he really does have a need and that he, he's dissatisfied. You see, the, the problem is when you're still trying to get the high you don't realize how dissatisfied you are. 
as you're still trying to think, if I could just get one more hit, if I could just get one more, one more, you know, one more breakthrough, then I'm going to, you don't realize how needy you are, how dissatisfied you are. One of the things that impressed me is a thing called the law of diminishing returns. And, and it's the idea that your body only gets tricked once. That, that something like cocaine or some, some really addictive substance can tr- trick your body one time into giving up uh, a huge percentage of your pleasure hormones. But your body will never be tricked again. And so every time you do it after that, you get less and you get less and you get less. So your mind goes, give me more, give me more, give me more. See, even in the physical realm, dissatisfaction is inevitable. The inability to meet the need by your own physical actions or you can stimulate, but you cannot satisfy. And so finally, you see, when he comes to the end of himself, when he comes to the end of his resources, he goes, man, I'm in need. Man, I'm not satisfied. And then the memory comes. Now, I know it's early on a Sunday morning, but I want you to think with me. In every soul, in your soul, there's a memory trace. And that memory trace is the home you were made for. It's the garden you were designed for. It's the paradise, which is the end to which God is taking you. Now, one of the ways I know this is in, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, when the perfect appears. And I use this often in funerals. The, uh, the idea is you and I have a design for which this world is not complete for us. It's not right for us. This is not the end. This is not even where our best life can be lived. In some ways, um, it might seem like a stri- silly illustration, but in some ways you can see this when you see a whale on the beach. When you see a beach whale... What you see is the massive size of the whale. You see the, the power and strength of the whale. You see, the, in, in many ways, the, 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 the interesting design of the whale. But on the beach, everything about him is wrong. He tries to swim, but there's no water. He tries to move, but there's nothing for which his body was made to move on the sand. So on the sand, he just dies. But if that whale is in his design, if he's in the perfect, if he's in what he was made for, his his true end, then you see him in the water and his size is perfect. You see him in the water and his strength is perfect. You see a whale breach the water and you see beauty. Because a beach whale is not what he was designed for. I'm going to intentionally insult you. You are all a bunch of beached whales. This is not where you were designed for. This is not your end. This is not your purpose. How do I know that? Because here you die. Here you're on a beach. You're trying your best to swim. You're trying your best to use all of the things that are, you were created really for. But none of it works. And the older you get, the less it works. I'm finding out personally that. We're beached whales, but you see, when you come home to the Father, when you remember the memory trace of the home you were made for, 
then you are like a whale in the water. You dance. You soar. You move. And you have your being. See, there's really no place you can go and hide from God. There's no place where your anger at God or at life or your unbelief in God or unbelief in life, none of those negative emotions can sustain a satisfying life. It's not what you were made for. So one of the greatest descriptions of spiritual awakening I've ever seen is in this story where it says, I'm no longer worthy to be his son. I've so messed up. I've so destroyed even my sonship that I'm not worthy to be a son. Now, why I call this a spiritual awakening is because when he left home, he said there's something better than sonship. Sonship is not life, he said. Well, once he got into the pigsty, he realized there was something a whole lot better. He had to come to the end of himself to realize I'm not even worthy to be his son. And so he begins... To do what many of us do when we start coming back to God. Okay, how can I be a better person? How can I make an offer to God that God can't refuse? You know, I'll try and do better. I'll be a a servant, he says. And he practices his prayer. And he practices his speech. And he says, I'm going to balance out my bad so, so Dad will take me back. And so the whole idea of grace is completely unfamiliar to him. He doesn't understand grace at all, but it's okay because the only one who needs to understand grace is the one who gives the grace. So the Father knows grace, gives the grace to sons who don't even understand grace. Because as soon as he gets home, he can't even finish his speech before the Father kisses him and shuts his stupid mouth. And that embrace of the Father is the embrace of forgiveness. Do you understand in the story, he won't let him be a servant. He will only let him be a son. Now this is truly a beautiful story, isn't it? I mean, it's an awesome story. But I, I think sometimes we've messed up a little bit. And we've tried to make it a one and done story. We've tried to say, as long as you come home, as long as you pray a certain prayer, as long as you express a certain faith, you'll be okay. You won't go to hell. You'll go to heaven. It's not really Jesus' intent here, is it? His intent is the proximity and closeness to the Father that only a son, a true son, can have. And you only get to have that if you come realizing, I'm not even worthy to be the son. I'd have to work up to being a servant. But then as he embraces you, as he kisses you, the forgiveness is so real to you that you realize that in this house you're never a servant. You're a son. And it doesn't matter, friends, if you're a daughter or a son. In his house you have all the rights and privileges of a firstborn son. Because the one who gave you entrance into the house is the firstborn son. And in him, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no male nor female. There's no slave or free. All of us are sons in him with the rights and status thereof. But here's what I see a lot of times. People will pray a prayer. They'll do a a formulaic kind of a thing. They'll have a little bit of emotion and they want to not go to hell. So they'll come and they'll make a step. But see, if you're still saying, but, you know, Lord, I come home. But, you know, sexually, I'm still going to find my life in my flesh. 
I'm, I, you're dead to me in terms of my sexuality. You're dead to me in terms of my money. You're dead to me in terms of my finances and my, my life and my talents and my time. See, if, if you haven't gotten that your entire life is in the Father's house, you're still living as a prodigal. You see, you have to, you can't say, I, I think you're my life in this narrow little way. And then say, but give me my bios everywhere else. Because he can't be dead to you in one area and alive to you in another. You're either a son all the way, and he's the father all the way, or you're still a prodigal. And Jesus is speaking to prodigals. He's speaking to tax collectors. He's speaking to sinners. He says, as far from home as you might be, as abandoned as you are of the Father's house, you can come home, but come all the way home. Because you've got to find your bios in the home of your Father. Are you hearing me on this? So the second character here is the older brother. Now, a lot of times, because the first part of the story is so beautiful, we don't get to the second part. But think about this. If somebody tells you the punchline first, the joke is ruined. You ever had somebody tell you the punchline, and then they try to tell you the joke? It's just not funny. So this is called the principle of in stress. In other words, the real thing he wants to stress is the last thing. And so he's talking to the tax collectors and the sinners, and then he turns his finger and he's speaking directly to these snickering, snarky Pharisees condemning these condemning religious leaders. And he says, here's who you are in the father's house. Here's the older brother. He finds out his brother is home. The father has thrown the brother a party. The brother says, I'm too pure to go into that party. I'm too religious. I'm too good of a son to go into that party. He forces his father to come out to him. I want you to see this because either way, the father runs after the son. Either the son who's far off in the far country or the son who's having a temper tantrum in his room. He chases after them both. He forces his father to come out and he refuses to join the party. What Jesus says is this religious son is miserable to see a party for his undeserving brother. The father says, your brother who was dead, remember the brother who called father dead? Your brother who was dead is now alive. How can you not celebrate? And the brother says, but he doesn't deserve to be alive. So grace makes him angry. And grace makes him miserable. There's a party going on, but he hates the party. There's no joy in his religion. His religion, Jesus is saying, is a bondage. Now, one of the reasons that the tax collectors and sinners loved Jesus so much is they knew exactly who he was talking to, and they were standing right there. Jesus is fearless, you see. So, what is Jesus' point? Well, though this man lives in close proximity to his father, his heart is a million miles away. And what the Bible calls this is a spirit of slavery or a spirit of bondage. And, and, and the distinction of how you live in the father's house 
is according to Scripture, either he gives you his spirit of adoption, whereby as sons and daughters we cry out to Jesus as Father and call him our Daddy, or you have a spirit of slavery which leads to fear, so that even if you are close to God, you're afraid of him and you have no real relationship with him. So there's an incredible danger of even church people or people who call themselves Christians If the forgiveness of someone else makes you miserable, then you are an elder brother in the house. You see, because he doesn't really need grace. He deserves what he gets. He doesn't need forgiveness. He's never done anything wrong. He's a good person. But Jesus says he's miserable. He's particularly miserable when he sees the father wasting his love on a lost son. I love how he argues. He spent it all, father, on prostitutes. How does he know? I don't know. And wild living. You would think that would just end the party right there. But isn't a a party kind of wild living in a sense? I mean, that God would throw a party for us. That would be wild to someone who hates any grace. He's spending, see, in a way what he's saying is he's spending it on prostitutes. Now you're spending it on the one who spent it on prostitutes. So he gets angry at his father. Come on. This is pretty powerful if you think about it. You see, once... once, Once God doesn't do what you want him to do, you get angry with God. Because I deserve, and he doesn't deserve. I demand, he has no demand. I have a demand. And he says, you never gave me a party. Grace divides us. It divides us into those who are amazed by it and those who think no one deserves it. And those who think no one you know, no one should have his grace, really actually are saying, I'm miserable, I want you to be miserable just like I'm miserable. So the Son of God, Jesus himself in the story, reveals the character of the Father. Wow, what a thing. He gives him kisses. You know, I guess he probably still smelled like pigs. I doubt he had a chance for a shower before the father started to kiss him. And then he says, bring the best robe and the ring and the sandals. What a, what a picture. I, I don't know the answer to this. I, I have two suggestions. I don't, where does this robe come from? One could be this. Commentators say this. That he knew the son was coming back, so he saved his robe for him. He gave everything else, but he, but he held back the robe and, and he knew he was coming back. He knew he would welcome him back. And when he welcomed him back... He knew he would need the robe of the Father. But I do know this. The ring is a signal of authority. That in other words, not only has he restored his sonship, but he restored his authority over the house. That when you are in Christ, you get to operate in the authority of Christ. You get to operate in the ring that Christ himself operates in. But I like this one. He gave him his sandals back. You see, in, uh, in the traditional house, only the owners got to wear sandals. The slaves didn't wear sandals. Guests didn't even get to wear sandals. Sandals were a sign of ownership. He gave back the ownership of the house to his wayward and lost son. 
And then when he killed the fatty calf and he celebrated that his son was alive. I mean, a lot of us really think that if we come back to God, God's just going to punish us. Or as we say in the South, give us a whooping. (laughs) And yet here Jesus says we get party after party after party. See, what happens is the older brother has told you about this older brother of the lost brothers told you about the father instead of the brother who came from heaven who's revealed the heart of the father in this story. In some ways, what this parable is saying is that you can have a life where you abandon God, but you can come home. But you could also have a life where you live severe religious discipline and you can be as far away from God as if you left home. Yeah, the third son in the story is the essential one. Here, here's what I really think. I think the robe is the older son's robe. I think the ring is the older son's ring. I think the sandals are the older son's sandals. Because I don't believe you can come back into the father's house on your own wealth. I think the only way you come back into the father's house is if the wealth of the older brother has been spent for you. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. The robe that you wear in the Father's house isn't your robe, but it's a robe of righteousness that Jesus himself has provided for you. The ring of authority, it's not your power, but it's the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ because if you're in Christ, you're loved as Christ and you're treated as Christ. But what an awesome thing. The father says, you screwed up, you messed up. I understand that, but you're a son and you have ownership in the house. I give you the sandals of a son. Where else is that going to happen? His love, his love not wondrous is his grace not amazing. Wayward sons are called home. Religious sons, he will chase even in our temper tantrums and say, come into the party. But better than that, our older brother left heaven and came to the pig pen and found us. And he brought us a robe and he brought us a ring and he brought us the sandals. Here's what I'm asking you today. Don't don't just put a toe in the Father's house. Come all the way in. Take the forgiveness. Take the robe. Take the ring. Take the sandals. They're the son's sandals, robe, and ring. Join the party. Will you stand with me? Is this making sense to you? Would you do this with me? I, I want us to say, I have no idea the music for this hymn, so we're not going to sing it. It was 1946 music, so I don't know, you know. Uh, but I love these words. All right, so I'm going to make you say them a few times because sons and daughters in the Father's house will realize this is who you are. This is your robe. This is your ring. This is your sandals. This is the party which he has provided for you. Would you start with me on this, okay? The very first line says, my God has chosen me. Will you say that with me? My God has chosen All right, All right, some of you got excited. The rest of you, I don't know where you are right now. I smell pig, but uh, (laughs) come on. If you need to, put your hand on your heart. Do something 
Do you not understand? I mean, I'm looking around this room and going, God, you chose them? Are you kidding me? I say that to myself. God, you chose me? Isn't that why grace is amazing? Is that God the Father chose to bring me home? And to give me the robe? I can't imagine that. People sometimes say, well, aren't you, aren't you, you know, are you a Christian? I'm like, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it, that I should be a Christian? <laughs> all right, so can we say it with a little feeling? You're coming home to the Father, all right? Say it with me. My God has chosen me. Say it again. My God has chosen me. One more time. My God has chosen me, the one of naught, to sit beside my king in heaven's court. All right, stop there a minute. Do you understand? It's saying, and I love this, I'm not even worthy to be a servant. I'm one of naught. I'm nobody and nothing. But because he's chosen me, I don't get to stay there. Okay? Because my place now is not in the pig pen, but to sit beside the king. All right, so can we say this a few times together? To sit beside, ready? To sit beside my king in heaven's court. One more time. To sit beside my king in heaven's court. This is who you are. This is what this story means. You are now sitting beside the king in heaven's court. All right? So here's what I want you to do. Point to somebody beside you. Come on, look at them. I know you don't like them, but try it anyway. All right, so look at them, look them in the eye and say, say this with me, okay? My place is to sit beside my king in heaven's court. All right, so that's you making that declaration. Now say it to them, all right? Your place is to sit beside my king in heaven's court. You know all your secrets and you know how amazing that truth is. Here's what I, why I love this hymn is basically saying God knows you all the way to the bottom, but He loves you to the skies. Will you say the last part with me? Hear what my Lord has done. Oh, the love that made Him run to meet His erring Son. This has God wrought. We went from naught to what God has wrought. Look, sometimes, sometimes you need to make a step. Just like the prodigal had to make a step. Not just in words or mind, but, but to step out physically. So we've got some prayer ministers who are here today. Maybe you just want to affirm, Father, I'm back in your house. I don't have life apart from you. Maybe, maybe you've thought you're nothing but a slave. Maybe today's the day to put the robe on, put the ring on. You know, put, put these sandals on. Man, these are the right sandals, all right, for the house of the Lord. Maybe today's that day. Um, I know he's here. I feel in his presence very powerfully. So we have some prayer ministers. You want to make um, just some, some 
verbal declarations or prayers before the Lord. Today's the day to do it. Lord, we seal what you're doing now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.